Hello, and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com or on your favorite podcast listening platform. I'm Rahul Chaturvedi, co-founder of this podcast and today's host. I'm also the founder and CEO of Clora. Clora is organizing the world's life sciences expertise in order to enable biotechs to build on-demand teams. You can check us out at clora.com. I'm excited to welcome Sekar Kathirason, founder and CEO at Verve Therapeutics. Thanks for joining us today, Sekar. Rahul, a real pleasure to join you today. Wonderful. So Sekar, to kick us off, would love to understand you know, the arc of your career and how you got to where you are today. Thanks again, Rahul, for having me. So my name is Sekar Kathirason. I grew up in originally in India, came to this country age nine, grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, attended college at the University of Pennsylvania, studied history, and then went on to medical school at Harvard and afterwards did internal medicine training. So trained to be a doctor and a cardiologist at Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston, and then went on to do research training, spent several years learning how to be a geneticist, human genetics researcher, and then spent about a dozen years running a research lab focused on the genetic basis for heart attack. And this brings us to roughly 20 16, 17, when developed an idea for a company, what's become Verve, and spent a couple of years incubating that idea. And then in 2018, founded Verve Therapeutics. And then in 19, I came in to lead it full time, leaving behind my academic position. So over the last four years, we've built this company, Verve, to develop gene editing medicines for cardiovascular disease. And I'm excited to kind of share that arc with you and the listeners. Great. Thanks, Hikar. I'm curious when you went from working at the Broad to then thinking about even founding your own biotech, talk to us a little bit about that entrepreneurial journey for you. I think the first dozen years or so of my career really revolved around learning to take care of patients. So that's kind of like chapter one, I like to call, and specifically patients with cardiovascular disease. And then chapter two was really the research around genetics and genomics of cardiovascular disease. You know, when I started in that research phase, that was around 2000, 2001, at the dawn of the genomics kind of era when the Human Genome Project had just completed. And it was pretty clear that genetics played a role in common diseases like heart disease, but which specific letters conferred risk or resistance, it was unclear. And so over a decade or so, we ended up really decoding which letters in the genome conferred risk risk or resistance to heart attack. And the only problem I've really studied pretty much my whole career has been heart attack. And heart attack is a disease of the heart arteries getting blocked over time due to blood cholesterol. And what we learned in terms of the genetics work is that some people are at very high risk for disease. And we were able to figure out which, again, DNA letters conferred risk. But maybe even more importantly, Rahul, we learned about people that were protected from heart disease, so remarkably resistant to heart attack. And that may be the most important kind of scientific contributions from the research work we and others did, which is that there are genes that where there are mutations, and those mutations reduce risk of disease. And they landed in any of like eight genes in the genome, at least for heart disease. And all the mutations that conferred protection, they had a very similar profile. They would turn off a cholesterol-raising gene in that person. And as a result, the individual would have lifelong low levels of blood LDL cholesterol, the bad cholesterol, and were protected from heart attack. So once we had this catalog of eight genes, 
it gave rise to this idea of, well, should we really think about developing a medicine that might mimic those natural resistance mutations? Because if we could do that, then that could really help a lot of people potentially. It was in that kind of time period when these discoveries were being made that CRISPR basically got discovered. The idea of editing DNA, and this is in 2012, 13, 14. And I was at the Broad Institute, also at the Mass General Hospital, but the Broad was kind of where half my lab was. And I shared the 10th floor of the Broad Institute with somebody named Feng Zhang, one of the early pioneers of CRISPR. So Feng and I have been chatting for a couple of years and about this idea of marrying kind of CRISPR with some of the human genetics research we've done. And then the American Heart Association actually put out a competition in 2016 called One Brave Idea. And they were going to give $75 million to a single person in terms of an award. Mm. Uh, they wanted the best idea to cure heart attack, cure coronary heart disease. So the idea we proposed was developing a CRISPR-based medicine that would essentially turn off a disease-causing cholesterol-raising gene, basically that would mimic those natural resistance mutations that we identified. Now, we didn't end up winning that competition, but we decided to go ahead and just pursue the idea. And over two years, from 2016 to 2018, I led a small group. We met weekly and to kind of flush out how we could raise funds, build a team, execute on this idea for a one-and-done medicine for heart attack. And we got Google Ventures interested, a couple of other venture capital firms. And then in 2018, we closed an initial round of financing, and that led to the formation of Verb Therapeutics. And that's really the transition kind of from academia to biotech. And Shaker, for your own personal journey, I'm curious what your first pitch sounded like when you were fundraising and let's say the evolution of that pitch to securing, you know, hundreds of millions in financing. Now, what were some of those lessons that you learned perhaps the hard way? I think a couple of lessons. One is fundraising, getting people interested, captivated in an idea is about relationships. And that's a general lesson. I think most life, most success is about relationships. And I think that I had a set of relationships based on my academic days, but then I had to nurture new ones over a couple of years to build confidence, trust for people to kind of turn over their capital to us. So that's number one. Number two is people are captivated by big ideas. And the lead investor for us, Google, was really captivated by this concept of working on something to treat the largest cause of death in the world and working on entirely new approach to the disease. Currently, heart disease, diabetes, all these common diseases are treated in a certain way, chronic disease, chronic care, daily pills, intermittent injections. And what we were proposing was a one-and-done, a one-time therapy for a chronic disease. And they really gravitated to that. So relationships, big ideas. The third, I think, lesson is incentives. I mean, why do people want to invest? Why do they, in general, why do they want to put their hard-earned money to give to you? To be very simplistic, because they think they're going to have more money down, you know, yeah. five years from now, what they've given you initially. And so you have to keep that in mind as you think about pitching. It's really about, can you show a path to greater. So those are some of the lessons I learned along the way. Thanks for sharing with our audience and for, to, for aspiring entrepreneurs. I'd love to switch gears a bit and talk a little bit about, you know, before we get to Verve, if you could educate us on the current landscape and intersection of human genetics, with gene editing and where it is right now, and applying those advancements from a technology perspective to a common disease such as heart attacks. 
Yeah, maybe I'll start with the cardiology part of it, the heart disease part of it. I mean, heart attacks, I think people are familiar with the term, but just to get into the biology a little bit, you have the heart arteries that supply blood to the heart, and there's blood cholesterol floating around in the bloodstream carried in what are called lipoproteins. So these low-density lipoprotein, for example, LDL, is one of those carrier molecules for cholesterol. And what happens over several decades is that if the blood cholesterol is in excess, then it can deposit in the wall of the artery and clog that artery, kind of like the plumbing pipes can get clogged over time with gunk. This process of atherosclerosis, so the plaque buildup in the wall of the artery, takes decades. That's the chronic phase of the disease. There's also an acute phase to heart attack where at one given time point where the buildup is, there can be an acute blood clot that forms right at one spot. And if that blood clot stays there for more than about 20 minutes and it completely blocks the blood flow, then the part of the heart that's served by that artery can die. That death of heart tissue is a heart attack. So the disease has a chronic phase, several decades of plaque buildup, and there's an acute phase of one time point blood clot forming in the heart artery, completely blocking, leading to death of heart tissue. That death of heart tissue is what's recognized in terms of chest pain, EKG changes, and changes in blood tests. It's been this disease, the most common cause of death in the world, has been studied extensively over several decades. And what we know is that cholesterol is the key driver. And what we've learned over the last 20 years is that from human genetics research is that if one's LDL is really low, lifelong, it's very hard to get a heart attack, near impossible. And that insight came about from humans who naturally had LDL very low. In fact, one of the most storied examples of this is a gene called PCSK9. And about one in 50 African-Americans in the United States carries a mutation that turns off the PCSK9 gene, one of the two copies naturally. These individuals have roughly 40 milligram deciliter lower LDL lifelong than people who don't have the mutation. And they're about 80 to 90% lower risk of heart attack as a result. So dramatic protection based on having lifelong low LDL. What this taught us is that this is a disease of cumulative exposure to cholesterol. So you want to keep that cumulative exposure as low as possible. That's a little bit about heart disease, a little bit about the human genetics. Now, the approach that is typically taken to keep the cholesterol low, really as low as possible for as long as possible, which is the answer to heart disease, is pills, daily pills. And more recently, there have been injections developed that can be given every two weeks or so, monoclonal antibodies targeting PCSK9, for example, that work really well as, you know, to lower LDL as well. So there are the statin pills, there are these injections, and that's the armamentarium right now. Now, the challenge, Rahul, is that with that current armamentarium, only about a quarter of patients with heart disease, atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, the heart attack, only a quarter are actually at goal for LDL cholesterol. That's pretty sorry statistic. Yeah. Despite all that we have available, despite generic statin pills. So the question is, why is that? Like, why is it that we have medicines that can lower cholesterol? Like, why are three quarters of people not at goal? And lots of different reasons, but our thesis that's laid the foundation for our company is that this really has to do with the chronic care model for chronic disease. That model, you know, requires rigorous adherence, regular healthcare access, and extensive healthcare infrastructure. And all of those are in short supply, and people fall down, any one of those, over time. And there's a heavy burden placed on providers, patients, and the system overall. 
what we wondered was if you could safely lower LDL for a lifetime with a one-time treatment, really replace that chronic care model with the one and done, you really could have a lot of impact. And that's really how we got to the concept of Verve is really taking that insight in, from cardiovascular disease, what causes it, cholesterol, the insight from human genetics, which is if the cholesterol was low life, you would really wouldn't get a heart attack. And the specific genes that had to be turned off to lower the cholesterol lifelong. And then you had a technology, which we can talk about in a minute, a new technology, CRISPR-Cas9, that could allow you to rewrite the genome to turn off these cholesterol-raising genes. And so VER really kind of marries those three developments. And I'm curious, over the last couple of years, from your vantage point, what has the landscape in terms of company formation and companies getting funded that are working on cardiovascular disease looked like prior to, to you guys coming around? Yeah, I think that in general, at least in the biotech space, the last decade or so, and even I think large pharma, there has been a bit of a movement away from cardiovascular disease to, I think, the two key areas of investment have been oncology. And we can talk about the reasons why maybe in a few minutes. But there hasn't been a heavy investment in cardiovascular disease, despite the fact that, again, it's a big disease burden. And so when we proposed applying gene editing to cardiovascular disease, a common disease, four or five years ago in 2016-17, it was a pretty unique concept. And not particularly well-received initially, actually, and a lot of skepticism. And I think that we had one group, GV, Google Ventures, that really was captivated, that helped us a lot. But I have to say that their enthusiasm was not necessarily accepted by all. Great. Thanks. And so with that background, let's talk about where Verve is right now, how large is the team, and what the pipeline looks like. Yeah, so Verve Therapeutics, again, the goal is to develop once-and-done gene editing medicines for cardiovascular disease. We started in 2018, and we had a set of targets that we wanted to approach with gene editing based on the human genetics work. There were eight genes that we and others had identified that when turned off in humans with a mutation lowered risk of disease. Those eight genes collapsed into three pathways— so Verve picked one target for each of those three pathways. The first pathway is LDL. The second pathway is LDL and triglycerides. The third pathway is a lipoprotein called LP little a. So we had three genes, first gene PCSK9, the second gene ANGPTL3, the third gene LPA. Now, what's interesting, Rahul, is that all of our work is focused on heart disease, but the targets are all liver genes. So even though the organ we want to ultimately help is the heart, the target organ for our medicines is the liver. So we had the genes, we had the target organ, and the question was, what's the technology we're going to use to permanently turn off, for example, PCSK9 in the liver? And this is important in terms of the way we set up the company. We set it up as a product-focused company, not a, necessarily a platform. And our goal is to make products to eradicate cardiovascular disease. And so we were technology flexible as to which gene editing technology we used. At the time we started the company, there were two major gene editing technologies, standard Cas9, which is kind of like a molecular scissors that cuts DNA to turn off a gene. The other is something called base editing. It's like a pencil and eraser, make a single letter change at one spot in the genome, potentially to turn off a gene. The new kid on the block was the base editing approach. At that time, Cas9 had been around for about six years, 2012 to 2018. So we got access to both those technologies. And our goal was to compare them directly in cells, mice, and monkeys 
before choosing one or the other to go forward for our product. So what we did was in 2018, started the company, got the Series A, put a small team together. And then the initial work was really putting the pieces together to make a product. And our first program targeted PCSK9. We compared the Cas9 approach versus the base setting approach. And then about two years into that work in 2020, we were the first in the world to show that the base editing approach can work in vivo in monkeys. And before that, it had been unclear whether this kind of approach, making a very precise single spelling change in the DNA of the liver, could actually happen in primates. We did that. We actually, it was published in the journal Nature in 2020 and really allowed us to move forward in terms of additional fundraising with a second round and a third round of private financing, and then led to an initial public offering in 21. And subsequent to that scientific observation in terms of the product in non-human primates, we were able to move forward to get regulatory clearances in a couple of different countries and dosed our first patient last year in 22, July 22, roughly four years after starting the company and really a first-in-class medicine, the first time a human had ever been treated with a base editor. And it's taken a team, you know, we now have about 200 people in the company, grown a fair amount over the last four years. And that group has really catalyzed all that work. And what we're expecting in the second half of this year is our first human data set. It'll be about 12 patients, 12 to 15 patients that have been treated with this one-time intravenous infusion that the goal is to go to the liver, turn off the PCSK9 gene. And what we're looking for is acute safety, but also whether we've gotten any editing in humans in the liver. And the way we would know that is checking the blood level of the PCSK9 protein made by the gene, as well as the blood LDL cholesterol. And we expect both of those to come down. Great. Sekar, certainly a lot of very exciting progress in a relatively short period of time. I'm sure your role has changed quite a bit from the early years to now. I'm curious if you could talk a bit about the evolution of just your own role at Verve and really like how you figured out, hey, this is now I need to focus on this and this is not something that I was focusing on previously. Yeah, no, it's been incredibly exciting and fun to kind of take on this whole challenge of kind of building something from the ground up. We started, as I mentioned, in 1617, but really just an idea, you know, and what we've had to do is solve a lot of problems, you know, and there's this famous researcher at the Harvard Kennedy School named Ron Heifetz, who likes to distinguish between, is in the leadership area, distinguish between what he calls adaptive problems versus technical problems. Technical problems are those where there's a playbook and you just have to figure out how to implement it and kind of get it right. He actually often <laughs> says, a lot of medicine is actually technical problems. And being like a surgeon, for example, you know what needs to be done. You have to perfect the craft yourself or in your system, in your hospital. Whereas he thinks leadership is really about adaptive problems, problems where there's no prior playbook and you have to really figure out how to solve it. So you have to develop new knowledge to solve the problem. And so how do you solve adaptive problems? Well, we were dealing with an adaptive problem, but nobody else had developed an in vivo gene editing medicine with a base editor. And that is about building teams and enabling those teams to creatively think through how to solve the various things that have to happen to overcome one of these challenges. And so I spent a lot of my time early on basically recruiting. I've interviewed every single person that came into the company, roughly the first 150 people, hmm. a lot of time. And I think that that was helpful in figuring out the kind of people you want to bring in to kind of solve these problems and also the culture 
of what you're trying to build. And we kept it very simple, you know, nice people who like to get things done. And that's worked well for us. So a lot of the first year or two was really about building the team. And I put a lot of effort into that. Now, subsequently, you know, there's a lot of organizational challenges as you grow. You know, we've grown, as I said, doubled in size roughly each of the last four years. And we've had to take on new domains, you know. So initially, it was mostly research, kind of a lot of lab work. And then there was a fair amount of work in terms of in vivo pharmacology. Then there was a lot of work on manufacturing, how to make this stuff. Again, none of this had been done before. And then more recently, it's really building out the clinical. We have to come up with a regulatory strategy for getting this first-in-class medicine cleared to be able to dose first patients. We did that in three countries, submissions in three countries. We've gotten clearances in two. Then we've had to dose the patients. So that's a clinical operations team. So we've really had to build out and grow. And with each of those extending in each of those domains, I've had to learn what's important, what are the kind of right kind of people we want there, what's the right kind of leadership. So it's been kind of super fun to grow in these different domains over the last four years. Yeah. And Taker, if I could ask you to, to reflect a bit more, what has that supportive ecosystem looked like for you specifically as you've gone from, let's say, inflection point to inflection point so that you can rapidly learn as you approach these new areas? I'm somebody who really likes to listen and surround myself with people who have the subject matter expertise and that willingness to to solve problems and very practical. And so, you know, I've had that from my leadership team, from the board, you know, from our investors, really been able to surround myself with a range of people who've been supportive. You know, one of the things I've also appreciated is that I did spend 20 years, you know, learning to be a cardiologist and doing this research and working my way all the way to, you know, professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School. All that work, you have a cachet of credibility. It was really important because I think when you make a transition like this, there's nothing more important than your credibility. And I think that when people hear our story, talk to us, hopefully they appreciate that, look, we're in this to really help those cardiovascular disease patients, you know, the millions of them around the world that suffer from this problem. And that's really kind of our true north. And I think that that typically resonates with the people around you. So these are some of the things that I've kind of appreciated over the last couple of years. Great. And given that gene editing is still in its early years and there's dearth of talent in the space, how have you approached team building? Because you've, you've certainly grown quite a bit over the last four years in terms of what you're looking for and to make sure that folks are, let's say, culturally additive. You guys recently won one of the best places to work in, in biotech. So curious what the makeup of having a culture like that looks like when you've been involved in so much of the hiring. And again, I, like I said, we kept it very simple. You know, it's like nice people who like to get things done. So we focus on the subject matter expertise for the job, and that's kind of like a given. And that we have a pretty big team of people that interviews each person, roughly eight to 10 people interview from within the company, interview each new candidate. And then there's that subject matter expertise, but then there's this other layer of that character, that person, you know, do you want to work with that person? Are they going to be a, a you know, good person, a comfortable in the environment? A little bit of an intangible, right? And that's why you have so many people you know, looking at each individual. And then, you know, we also have leadership actively involved. As I said, that's worked well for us. Now it is a new field. So you can't require that, you know, people have experience with, you know, base editing, but the components, you know, so for example, our medicine is mRNA and a guide RNA. 
two nucleic acids packaged in a lipid nanoparticle. So even though that formulation, that ultimate product formulation is new, each of those components actually has vestiges in other companies, right? So guide, RNA, well, that looks like an SI, SI RNA. So there's lots of companies in Boston that have done SI, including Alnylam is a key pioneer in this space. And what about mRNA? Well, mRNA is relatively new, but even there, you know, five, 10 years of work with Moderna and others. Lipid nanoparticles, they've been around a while, almost 20 years. So we've been able to kind of get people, you know, that's one of the luxuries of being in Boston, being able to kind of pluck people from different places that have relevant experience, not exactly gene editing, but relevant experience. And we've been able to nurture them to put their talents to work on our problem. And that's the approach we've taken. And just on the topic of talent, over the last couple of years, you know, like you, there certainly were a lot of folks that have been leaving academia and were biotech curious. I'd love to hear your perspective on why you think that's been happening at a faster pace than prior years. And my example is maybe a good one as to why people are, there does seem to be a little bit or there's at least a perception that there's a little bit of a drain from academia to industry. For me, like ultimately all the research we did, we wanted to do was with the eye toward developing medicines, you know, toward using that information to help advance the care of cardiovascular disease. And what became clear right around the time we did that application to the American heart was it's really hard to develop new medicines in academia. And one of the key reasons is like just the sheer cost of it, right? You know, we've raised over four years, $800 million. That's like 3,000 R01 grants. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The typical grant for an academic from the NIH. We spend about $250 million over five years to get to where we are now. We still have another $550 million in the bank. But it's gonna, we're going to have to use all that pretty much to get to ultimately a product in a few years that can be prescribed by a doctor. And then the skill sets that are needed to develop a medicine all of the very particular skill sets that I mentioned earlier, they're just not really that abundant in academia. So that's one reason I think people... And then I think there's been a lot of stresses in the last few years with COVID and the way the labs have been run and also the NIH funding. You know, there's a bunch of different reasons, I think. But the opportunities in the industry are plentiful to do great research, to have great impact. I think people are seeing that. I kind of welcome it. Or One of the challenges I see is that too often people are want to just kind of stay where they are and kind of turn the crank. And I think it's healthy to ask regularly, am I having the most impact I can? And if it's not at the place that I'm in now, where can that be? And I think a lot of people, and particularly COVID, I think forced people to kind of look within, you know, that kind of introspection, and then they may have arrived at a different conclusion than where mm. you know, that they really need to be somewhere else. Yeah. You know, one additional shift, particularly over the last 12 to 18 months, has been, you know, fundamental correction in the capital markets. I'm curious, as a CEO of a publicly traded biotech, how is the current environment influencing how you're approaching how you run your business and any advice perhaps you have for others that are concerned about the current environment? Yeah, I think that in our field, what I've learned, you know, for pre-revenue biotech, which is what we are, it takes about 10 years, right, to develop a new medicine. We started in 2018. We'll have a medicine to market somewhere in the late 2020s. And along the way, over those that 10-year period, we're basically a cash-burning business. And how do you generate that cash? It's really data. You know, data is currency. 
Initially for us, it was preclinical data. Now it's going to be human data. And that's how you keep people excited about willing to invest to keep going forward. Sometimes it's partnerships as well, but that's also typically based on data. I think the key here is focus. Think about what are the key experiments, key value inflection points, and what's the data you need to get there. And that's kind of how we've operated. We've had a couple of products that we've really been laser focused on. Recently, we've expanded a little bit to have you know five products in our pipeline all in vivo liver gene editing, but really still the focus, the majority of the company's effort is on that lead program Mm. and getting to human data for that lead program. So I think the answer in a capital-constrained environment is focus. And Sik, you sit on a couple of boards as well, sitting in the CEO chair now for the first time. I'm curious what you've learned about being a board member and what a good board for a pre-revenue biotech looks like. That second question about what does a good board look like, there are boards and there's the operating team. What a good board is not is is really getting into the shorts of the operating team and really getting knee deep in a lot of the details. I think the boards are best when they ask thoughtful, intelligent questions and push the team in a direction they may not have thought about. And that's the kind of advice that I've appreciated over the last few years. And that's the kind of advice I try to provide to the two boards that I'm on. You know, at the end of the day, and this may be heretical to stay, okay, but at the end of the day, the success of a company, very little to do with the board. Okay? Yeah. It has to do with the people that are operating the company. And, you know, boards are advisors. that They have a fiduciary responsibility, but they're, you know, ultimately they can guide. And that's kind of what I think, you know, good looks like. Yeah. And so on that topic, I'd love to again ask you to reflect a bit. And given all that you've seen and experienced and achieved during your career, I'd love to ask you, you know, what's one piece of advice that you wish you could provide your younger self, knowing all that you've now experienced? I'm going to keep it very simple. I think it's do something different in your career every 10 years. I think that it's really important to change. Somebody could say, oh, why does that have to be 10 years? It doesn't have to be 10 years, maybe every five. Not every year. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> but the, oh, people often get into a rut and they just kind of are comfortable with where they are. The change that I've felt in the last four years has been so invigorating, mm. so invigorating. It's a whole new set of people, a whole new way to think about things, new set of problems. And listen, I was here. I've been in Boston since 1992 when mm. I started medical school. So all of this stuff was within like a couple of mile radius of where I was working at Mass General on the Broad. But I did not have a purview to that amazing, to the amazing biotech ecosystem in mm. this area until I kind of made the leap in 2018. Yeah, I think people should try something different every so often. Yeah. yeah, that's great advice. Not knowing it, but I took that advice also when I hit, I think, the 10 and 11 year mark. It's similarly been really invigorating and just an expansion of just my own kind of mental models for what, you know, brings me joy too. So that's great advice. Yeah. And I think that, you know, look, ultimately why do that? I should close with this is that it is about impact, right? All of us want to have impact. And, you know, typically that kind of change can hopefully catalyze even more impact. And that would be the goal for any given change. Well, on that note, Sikhar, thanks for joining us today and for sharing, I'm sure, what's a very small portion of advice and experiences that you've had. Really enjoy the conversation. A really a pleasure to join you. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by me, Rahul Chaturvedi, and Alok Tai. 
If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at biotech2050pod. Again, that's biotech2050pod. Until next time.